If you've ever gone down the shore or waded out into the ocean, you have lived an illustration of what life is like. Depending on the power of the particular waves of that day, whether it be to a lesser or to a greater extent, you will feel pushed over, pushed off your feet as waves push you backward. And then as the wave retracts, you feel the undertow and the current pulling the sand beneath your feet, destabilizing your footing, threatening to pull you in. And then you regain your footing briefly, and the next wave comes. Occasionally, you might, if there's something nearby, a reef or a rock that you can hold on to or put your foot on, you might have a foothold temporarily. But there's nothing that you can do to keep the next wave from coming. And this is what life is like, in particular the Christian life. The life of a believer is one that Jesus told us would be ridden with tribulation and suffering. And this pattern of wave and respite, wave, respite, wave, respite, can get tiring. And when it does, if you're in the ocean, well, you just decide to get out of the water and return to solid ground. But in life, it's not that easy. In this world in which we live, it is like wading in the ocean, wading in a world of sin and sickness and evil. But we do so knowing certain things. We do so knowing that as time goes on, we get a little bit better at managing those waves. We get more experience with the undertow. We also know that there is a rock upon which we can have stability amidst the waves. And we also know there is a day coming when there will be no more waves, when our feet will forever be planted on God's shore in heaven. Psalm 42 and 43 are laid out just like life, wave after wave of taunting trial, punctuated by truth and hope. And today we're going to consider both psalms together, 42 and 43, as it is believed by many to have been one psalm originally. It even appears as a single psalm in some Hebrew manuscripts. And as we study, I believe it will become clear why they are connected. Psalm 43 brings a a resolution to the lamentation of Psalm 42. Psalm 42, left alone, leaves us in the proverbial ocean. Psalm 43 brings us back to the shore. Uh, interestingly, uh, it actually saw this, these two psalms together set the pattern for a lot of what modern music is like. Remember, the psalms were song. We're going to see in this case we have verses and then repeated choruses. So there are three verses to this song, verses 1 through 4, 6 to 10, and then Psalm 43, 1 through 4 are the three verses of the song. And then the repeated chorus in verse 5, verse 11, and Psalm 43, verse 5 are the exact same words. I'm going to begin, though, by reading just Psalm 42. And as I do, keep keep in mind the illustration of the waves as you hear the psalmist, as he endures wave after wave, punctuated by brief rests where he reminds himself of truth. Psalm 42, to the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for the flowing stream, so pants my soul for you, O Lord. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. 
When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead in the procession at the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you so cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mitzar, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All the breakers of your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of my enemy? As with deadly wounds in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The Psalms are very rarely characterized merely by abstract doctrinal truth. They are most often saturated with human emotion and experience. They are intimately described, they often intimately describe the struggle of the psalmist's soul as he bears his heart before God, before the reader, us, and also to himself. Psalms have proven to be a great source of comfort and encouragement for God's people in every age. Back in 597 B.C., long time ago, when Babylon surrounded Jerusalem and broke into the temple and plundered the temple and took Jerusalem captive, the hopes of the Jewish people at the time were plundered, leaving them with many questions. And they were seeking answers to those questions while in their exile. And it is at the same time, while they were in exile, that some in their number began to collect the poetry of David and Asaph, and the sons of Korah, and Solomon, and Ethan, and Hermon, and even Moses, and others, they discovered this rich source that today we know as the book of Psalms. And they discovered that even before exile, the people of God were asking the same questions that they were asking while in their exile. And they began using these poems to worship God. They started using the Psalms. The Psalms were actually compiled as a worship book for the exiles. It was kind of their virtual temple. They were without a building. They were scattered throughout Babylon. The Psalms was their virtual temple. And it helped encourage them to connect with God in the absence of a temple. The Psalms reminded the Jewish people that God had not abandoned them that God was still in control of their lives and that he was still guiding them, even in their exile. It was during the exile that the Jewish leaders, among them perhaps Ezra, organized the Psalms into five books. Psalm 42 is the first psalm of the second book 
or the second scroll of the Psalms, of the Psalter. Unlike the previous 39 Psalms that we have studied, this one was not written by David. This is the first Psalm that is clearly not written by David. Though, when you read it, it very much sounds like the same heart, doesn't it? People are surprised that words like, as a deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants after you, was not written by David. But it certainly has the same heart and certainly the same spirit. If you were unaware of how the, the books of the Psalms were broken up, you wouldn't even notice that there was a change as you go from Psalm 41 to Psalm 42. Book 2 begins where book 1 left off. Psalm 42 picks up with the same ideas that we've been seeing over the last six psalms. That life is fleeting, that, that we are weak, uh, that we are sinful, that we are subject to illness, that there are enemies around us seeking to destroy us, and there are friends that act like enemies. Here now, we come to the first psalm of book 2, and we again find the psalmist's soul dealing, disturbed by the very same things, even as he longs for restoration. Now, Psalm 42 is the first of eight psalms in a row written by the sons of Korah. It says it's a maskil. That word, if you remember, if you were listening last week, it means a meditation or a consideration. Same word we saw in Psalm 41 when it said, consider the poor, that's maskil. Same word, it's a masculine, meaning meditate on, on these words, consider these words. The sons of Korah, who were they? They were believed to be descendants of the same Korah, who along with Dathan and Abiram rebelled against Moses and died in an earthquake when the earth swallowed them up during that rebellion. Korah's descendants fared a much better fate. They became leaders, they became singers, they became the choral and orchestral music of the tabernacle during the reign of David. They played an important role in Thanksgiving worship services when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the camp, brought into Jerusalem. It was the sons of Korah who understood the power of music to lead the congregation into the presence of God. Eleven psalms are written or attributed to the sons of Korah, and they express a longing for God, as we see in verse 1, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for thee. Psalm 84 is another one. How lovely is your dwelling place, O God. That's the sons of Korah. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and our strength, our ever-present help in trouble. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. That's all sons of Korah. The title of Psalm 42 contributes to our understanding of the context. Psalm 42, as all of the psalms that are written by the sons of Korah, are communal psalms. That is, they're songs to be sung in public worship. They were sung in the tabernacle and later in the temple. This one is particularly a communal lament. It's a lamentation song written from the perspective of Israelites who for one reason or another sense themselves to be far from God or in fact are far from God. Psalms like 42 and 43 were essential in sustaining Israel during their exile later on in their history 
when they were carried off into exile in Babylon. It was these kinds of psalms that sustained them and continues to sustain God's people when we feel in exile. It opens with the psalmist expressing his thirst for God. And he compares it to the way a panting deer thirsts for water brooks. And he identifies God with a specific term here, the living God. The living God distinguishes God, our God, the true God, from the lifeless idols. He sees God as his source of life, the living God. Few verses in Scripture are more beautiful than verse 1. That's why I think so many songs were written. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for thee. And it reveals the heart of one who truly loves God. The verse has been used by God to awaken dead souls. As they ask themselves, am I like this psalmist? Do I thirst after God? God has used this psalm to revive souls in the midst of dryness. Why is it that I no longer thirst for God? Does my soul pant for the joy and pleasure of God? Or am I panting after other cisterns? The psalmist's thirst for God's presence is, as we're going to see, not referring to, at least in the original context, not referring to God's presence as that internal feeling, but rather God's presence, the the presence that he's longing for is very specifically for the gathered people of God, corporate worship. And it's easy for us when we, especially in Western culture, very I. A very individualistic culture. It's easy for us to personalize Psalm 42 and not understand how important and how delightful corporate worship was to Israel. It was necessary for them to be sustained as a nation. And we look at our lives today and try to parallel it to church attendance and Church, it doesn't seem to line up. So church attendance is something in our day we could take or leave. We even belittle it or disparage it at times in our culture. Pastors will say things like, going to church makes you no less a Christian than being in a garage makes you a car. Have you heard that one? And while that's true, being in the church, being in this building today does not make you a Christian. It does not save anyone. Nevertheless, church attendance is vitally important in the working out of our salvation. Also, we tend to perceive temple worship as lifeless religious ritual. And that is what it became. In the time of Jesus, it certainly was. That was the second temple period. In Judaism, a very dry time. It was under, the temple was under Pharisaic control during the time of Jesus. And it became about merchandising and selling and dead rituals and politics. But this was not always the case. And the Psalms are proof of the vitality and life that once existed in temple worship. There was a genuine relationship with God that was expressed outwardly when the people of God gathered. And it was genuine and it was real. The end of verse 2, the psalmist is exiled from God's people. For some reason, we don't know, something is keeping them away. He asks the question, when? When shall I come and appear before God? What's keeping him away? We don't know. It's hinted at. If you look down at verses 9 and 10 for a minute, 
He says, why do I go on mourning? He says, because of the oppression of my enemy? As with deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say all day long, where is your God? Maybe there was someone, some enemy holding him back, holding him captive, taunting him, mocking him for his belief in God. And for one reason or another, he's mourning this distance that he has. His thirst is not quenched. Tears are his food. He's weeping day and night, verse 2 says. Verses 4 and 6 capture the idea of the corporate gathering in Jerusalem. That That's what these worshipers are specifically missing here. Look at verse 4. He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. That word go there is a term that denotes the pilgrimage that was made to Jerusalem three times a year for the festivals. They would go, they would make pilgrimage. And he's remembering what it was like. It was joyous. It was, there was festive music. There was a procession and the psalmist was leading that procession. There were sacrifices being offered. He's ushered into the presence of God and he's missing that. But where is he at this time? Look at verse six. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Bitzar. This is a region that was far north of Jerusalem. It was the source of the Jordan River where there were waterfalls flowing. And he mentions that in verse 7. There's a proverbial mention of waterfalls. So likely he's, in a sense, looking out his window and he sees these waterfalls. He hears them and he says, verse 7, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. And it's ironic, isn't it? Because there's all this water flowing in these waterfalls from Mount Hermon. And even in such abundance of water, that will not quench his thirst for God. In fact, it's only threatening to carry him away. And whether literal or figurative, the psalmist is far away from the presence of God. He's far away from Jerusalem. He's alienated from the gathered people of God. He misses it, and he's remembering what it was like to be a vital participant with Israel in the worship of Yahweh. And like waves of distress, he laments his sense of alienation. Then there's a brief respite from the waves. God throws him a lifeline. He reminds him of his love. Look at verse 8. He reminds him of his love, and he reminds him that he's a rock. Verse 8. Uh, By the way, in verse 8, it says, the Lord, by day, the Lord. See, that's the only mention of Yahweh in this psalm. Every other place, God, El, the general term for God is used. But here, as God is reminding him of his steadfast love, he uses that covenant-keeping name, Yahweh. By day, Yahweh commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say, God, my rock. But yet, as powerful as that song is, to remind him, his situation hasn't changed. Another wave comes. Verse 9 continues, For have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? The steadfast Love of the Lord aside, 
he feels forgotten. He knows that God loves him, but he still feels forgotten. The picture here is of a, someone thrashing in tumultuous waves, trying to grip onto something. There's the steadfast love of Yahweh, his God, is, who keeps his covenant and shows his mercy. He grabs hold of a second, but another wave comes. So it's wave truth, wave truth. Have you ever been there? Before we looked at the resolution of the psalmist's cry in 43, let's look at the song's chorus. Same words in verse 5, 11, exact same words, and in verse 5 of Psalm 43. The psalmist asks this question, Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. In this chorus, the psalmist repeats three times. He turns inward and he interrogates himself. He asks himself questions about the way that he feels. He's honest with his own soul. And he says, why are you downcast? Why are you depressed? Why are you in turmoil within? You know that you can hope in God. You know that you have a God that you can hope in. You know that you have hope for a future. You know that once again you will be worshiping with the people of God. He saved you to be a worshiper. How can you be hopeless, my soul? This is the kind of self-conversation that I think every Christian understands. I, I, I hope I'm not the only one who talks to themselves at times. There's a tension that exists when you live in this life and in this world. It's an ever-changing world. Yet we are called, our soul is called to live for, for eternity. And this dialogue between the two aspects of life, every believer can identify with the already and the not yet. We're in this world. We're called out of this world. But we've not yet seen the perfection of the life to come. As human beings, we were created by God to live in a perfect world in God's presence. And that remains the longing of our soul. As long as our eyes are on that eternal place and we know that we're going there, we're not going to be content with the things of this world. The banks of the shores of earth will always feel stormy as there is wave after wave after wave that hit us, no matter how many preachers will tell you otherwise. That's the reality of life. I believe brothers and sisters, with all my heart, that this is the normal condition for every Christian. And yes, we have joy as believers. But Christian joy is not this stoic denial of the reality of pain. We're not supposed to just pretend that everything's going to be okay when it's not okay. Yes, we live contentedly. We are supposed to be the most content people on earth. And we are to enjoy the good things in life that God gives us. But our soul is never going to be completely satisfied with anything on earth. Because it's all going to come to an end. It's all fleeting. R.C. Sproul writes this. He says, when we deal with suffering, we tend to have our gaze completely locked on the present. But the Christian answer to suffering looks beyond the present to the future. The very essence of secularism he says, is the thesis, the hic et nunc, which means the here and now is all there is. 
There is no, that's the realm of secularism. The here and now is all there is. He says there is no realm of the eternal. But as Christians, we're called to consider the present in light of the eternal. Your soul was not created to be content merely with what this world has to offer. Even its most beautiful things are only shadows of the perfect that is to come. And today we live in a valley of tears. But remember, brothers and sisters, a day is coming when he will wipe away every tear. And knowing that is your respite, even as another wave would come. Knowing that he's going to wipe away those tears is your rest. Alas, the psalm resolves with a release in Psalm 43. Notice Psalm 43, no title. That's further evidence that some say that it's a continuation of Psalm 42. Let's look at verses 1 through 4. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. That's the resolution. Psalm 42, remember I said, leaves you out in the ocean? Well, this, that lamentation resolves in Psalm 43 with this faith-filled prayer of assurance. The prayer is this. Those enemies that were oppressing me that I just mentioned, Psalm 42, vindicate me from my enemies. They're oppressing me. They're keeping me from gathering together with the people of God. Now, it seems like that soul talk that he had in the chorus of uh, verses 5 and 11 seems to have worked a bit. He, He sees God as his refuge, even in the midst of an enemy. He says, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. But yet, the waves have not ended. Look, Look at verse 2. Same words as Psalm 42. So even though he has that encouragement, he knows he has this refuge in God, he says, why do I go about mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy? Same words as Psalm 42. Praise again, verse 3. Here's the turning point of the Psalms. Verse 3. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me where? To your holy hill. What's that? Zion, your holy hill, presence of God and to your dwelling. And then he affirms that again, he will go to the altar of God and have joy, the joy that he spoke about in Psalm 42 when he used to lead the throng in procession, in worship. The psalmist affirms his conviction that it is light and truth that he needs. What is that? God's word. That God's word is going to bring him back where he longs to be, that dwelling place, God's holy hill, the temple of the living God. Here he will again enjoy worship, the corporate worship of God. Here again he will make his pilgrimage with the throng, the multitude, keeping festival, leading procession 
to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise. It's going to happen again, and he knows it. His soul is convinced of it. The goal that he longs for in Psalm 42, that which he thirsts for as a deer panting for water, is now his by faith. He will worship God. He will be in the presence of God again. He is homeward bound even while in exile. And he can yet praise God who is his salvation. He stands as that hymn says, he stands in the proverbial banks of the Jordan, perhaps even literally based on his location in uh, that he describes in Psalm 42, on the banks of the Jordan, casting a wishful eye at Canaan's fair and happy land. He knows by faith that he is bound for the promised land. Now let's consider how we might apply this psalm to our lives. First is help for the depressed. Help for the depressed. Psalm 42, perhaps better than anywhere in Scripture, describes a depressed individual. What Martin Lloyd-Jones refers to as spiritual depression in his classic work, Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cure. Jones writes this, It's interesting to notice the frequency with which this particular theme, talking about depression, is dealt with in the scriptures. And the only conclusion to be drawn from that is that it is a very common condition. It seems in many ways, he says, to be the particular trouble with many of God's people. Whatever the reason, the fact remains that there are large numbers of Christian people who give the impression of being unhappy. They are cast down, and their souls are disquieted within them. If you've never read uh, Lloyd-Jones's um, book on depression, I would highly recommend it, along with another book by Ed Welch called Depression, the, this, the Stubborn Darkness. And I would agree with Jones here that the frequency with, with which this particular theme is dealt with in Scripture does suggest that it is a very common condition among God's people. So if you're downcast today, you're not alone. You shouldn't feel you just have to put on a happy face in front of others. A depressed Christian might seem to you like a contradiction of terms, because after all, is not the fruit of the Spirit joy? And ought intuitively joy overthrow depression? But the fact of the matter is, the two can coexist. A spiritually depressed Christian is a real thing. It is not necessarily related to any sin. And you are, in fact, in good company with David, Elijah, Jeremiah, John the Baptist, Luther, Spurgeon, and many others. Jones notes that certain personality types lend themselves to a greater tendency to spiritual depression. The melancholy. The introvert, the one who's very introspective, always looking within, analyzing everything that you do, worrying about the repercussions of your actions, full of regret, such are at great risk for suffering spiritual depression. Those in chronic pain are also vulnerable. Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, suffered spiritual depression because he battled an agonizing physical affliction. So you have that. And then you have the devil. 
And the devil would seek to oppress God's people. Now, we don't blame the devil for everything, but he does want to present Christians as depressed people who have no reason to be happy. But as Lloyd-Jones observes, one's temperament never disqualified anyone from the kingdom of God. Introvert, extrovert, melancholy, cheery, God's children are made up of all kinds of personalities. And trials and difficulties are no respecter of a person's temperament. Now, while depression does not disqualify one from being a true Christian, depressed Christians who remain in lengthy bouts with depression over many, many, many months to years are missing out on a great deal and do at times become a poor testimony testimony of the joy of the gospel in their life. And I'm talking here about chronic depression, long-term. Lamentation is part of our lives. We're going to go through seasons of lamentation. Temporary depression, that's the Christian experience. But that's only part of our Christian experience. Effort ought to be made. If you know that this is your, you're bent in this way, make effort to overcome and battle your depression. Psalm 42 and 43 contains a remedy, a place to begin if you feel spiritually depressed. In verse 5, in that chorus, in verse 11, in 43 verse 5, what is he doing? This is where the battle begins. He's preaching to himself. Why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. Who's talking to who here? He's reasoning with his soul. He's talking to himself. Soul, what business is it of yours to be downcast? Instead of being depressed, don't you have a reason to hope in God? Do you not remember that it is He who saved you? Do you not remember what He has done for you? Do you not remember His promises? He's preaching to Himself. Have you forgotten the cross? Have you forgotten the resurrection? Have you forgotten the power of the Holy Spirit in your life? What, as Pastor Bill used to say, what do you have to be so bummed out about? That your sins are forgiven or that you're going to heaven when you die? Is he not the helper? Is he not the rock of your salvation? Why so downcast? Oh, my soul, put your hope in God. As you meditate, as you remind yourself of who God is and what he has done, the person and work of Christ and the gospel, what he has promised you, even while you're feeling down, what you're doing is you're denying yourself. At that moment, you're denying yourself the right to a pity party and you're exalting God as your thoughts turn to the gospel. You're also defying the devil. You're defying the world around you that's saying to you, your enemy who's saying to you, where is your God? You're saying, I will praise him again, my salvation and my God. So yes, depression is real and large numbers of Christians deal with a disquieted soul. It can't be hand-waved away with seemingly spiritual platitudes of insensitive Christians. We live in an imperfect world, brothers and sisters, and with it come many waves. And at times those waves can knock you for a loop, but you begin to overcome by preaching the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of the good news, God's love, salvation. Jesus died for you. 
that today, even now, he ever lives to make intercession for you. Remind yourself of your inheritance in Christ, the bliss of eternal life that's promised to all who are justified by faith. Remind yourself of what John said in Revelation, death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying. Death, sorrow, crying, pain, all of these things are part of this world and will pass away. Can you imagine our future conversations in heaven when we start to talk about our life on earth and we go through that conversation and and maybe I'm there and I remind you and I say, remember back when you used to worry about that, that problem that you had, that trial? And you'll say to me, hardly even remember it anymore. There will be a day when that trial will be over and God will wipe away every tear. We're going to a place where there's no longer anything accursed. Revelation 22.3. Like, this, like the, the Christmas hymn goes, No more let sin and sorrow grow. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Where does the curse come? In this life, on this earth, our lives, our labors, our business, our relationships, even our vacations. They all suffer under the curse of a fallen world. And that's why there is this eternal yearning that we have of our souls. As Paul says in Romans, this groaning where we're waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. We're waiting for the moment, the time when that curse is removed. But until then, expect the waves. Grab hold of that which will not move. Grab hold of the rock, the truth, the light, God's word, Jesus Christ. Preach the gospel to yourselves. Secondly, remember, remember. Remember God's presence and the gathering of God's people. Remembrance is the key in in these Psalms. In Psalm 42 and 3, the word remember seven times. To call on God to remember. Remember his covenant. Remember your covenant promises. Remember your promise to provide comfort and hope in the times of struggle. He remembers God's presence. And that keeps him thirsting for God. He's not becoming complacent in this spiritual depression that he's in. He's not becoming complacent in his exile. He doesn't want his love to grow cold even while he knows he's in exile. In the book of Revelation, Jesus told the church at Ephesus, Remember and return to your first love. That is the love that you had at first. Maybe you're here today and you know that there was a time when, when Christ ministered to your soul greatly. But maybe that's been a while. Maybe you're at risk for forgetting your first love. Listen, it doesn't just happen overnight. It happens when you make soft choices. Who is it that you're fellowshipping with? Where do you go on Sunday? What are your priorities on the Lord's Day? Is the gathering of God's people even on number one? Or is it anywhere on the list? Do you quickly replace it with sports or social activities? Listen, love is not lost overnight. First commitment drops. Then it becomes disobedience. And before long, you're a practical atheist. You're living as if God doesn't exist. Your memory, remember, has the power to preserve. That's what the psalmist is saying here. Remember, we have ways to remember in our history. 
following the practice of Israel that raised stone pillars and altars, in our present day, we set up memorials for warriors and heroes, right, to remember them. That's also one of the purposes of corporate worship, to remind you, remind you of the gospel, remind you of your future. The assembled church, though imperfect, is to be an outpost of heaven and a taste of future glory. Don't neglect it. It has great value. Israel valued corporate worship, and the Psalms are proof of that value. There's corporate laments, communal praise, communal thanksgiving. Few of the Psalms come to mind, 31 and 73, as well as this one, where the psalmist is spending a lot of time expressing his suffering and the trials of his life, and then kind of the tide changes at the end when he says, I went to the house of the Lord. And, the, and all the eyes become, the eyes and me's of the psalm become we and us. And his whole attitude changes. Psalms is like that. It's this beautiful dance between the individual and the community in worship. Brethren, in a sense, we are all exiles in this world. We go on exile the minute we leave here, the minute we leave one another, we go on exile in the world. And we experience wave after wave. We experience a world that's continually questioning us. Where is your God? The gathering community of God's people is the respite between the waves. It proves that you are not alone. You are out in that world and you think, I'm the only one. I'm the only one on my job. I'm the only one in, in my neighborhood. Look around. There are scores of people here who believe just like you do. If you believe that you're alone, you're going to spiral into deeper trouble. And alone, if your soul is convinced that you're alone, then it has every right to complain and despair. But you're not alone. Look around. This is your reminder. The gathered people of God encourage us, encourages others. Your presence here says to them, I believe like you do. We encourage one another in our community toward faithfulness, endurance, and repentance. And together we remember what is so easily forgotten during the week. That God is good, His grace is amazing, and His love is steadfast. Corporate worship counters the cultural skepticism and hatred of God in our day that surrounds us. We're here every Lord's Day to exalt the living God, to quench your thirst for God, to jog your memory each week because the waves that beat against you in this world would have you soon forget that goodness and grace. And we need that, brethren. That's why you can't do church from home. One One of the worst residuals of the whole COVID experience was churches that are just online. And people believe that they're members of those churches and they just participate online. You are Christ's body. And whether you feel like it or not, you are a vital part of the family of God, of worshiping believers who together are, are sustaining one another. And we, and this, this idea stretches back to Israel, stretches back millennia and will continue to the end of the age. So stand together with the throng of people who desire to worship God, even when you don't feel like it. Even more when you don't feel like it. One of the roles of the congregation in worship 
is to worship when you cannot worship. Now, I'm not saying even when you don't feel like it, come in and make believe like everything's great. Come and let others uphold your worship. When I don't feel like it, when I feel like I'm in exile due to whatever, mourning, depression, or sin, here are God's people to lift up hearts and hands. I can't do it at the moment, but here are God's people to help me. It's a disservice to your soul to stay home when you feel depressed. And listen, I, I, I'm not exempt from these feelings. There are times that I don't want to fellowship or I, I want to be alone. Those are the times we need each other. Even, even if you feel distant or abandoned, the people of God celebrating the wonderful works of God, the glorious attributes of God is going to renew your certainty and hope. Beautiful illustration of the coal on a barbecue. If you have these old kinds of barbecues with coals on them. If you, if you pile up the coals, the, they burn, the, the fire burns, the coals don't burn out. They all become white and hot. But if, a, if one coal fall, falls off the pile by itself, it starts to burn out. It's, it becomes cold. Corporate worship is a place for you to remember the faithfulness of God to receive the power to stand in the waves that are coming at you in the present and to give you hope for the future, which is the third point of application. Look forward to seeing the face of God forever. You know, our little outpost in heaven here at Bread of Life is a small reminder. It's an imperfect foretaste of that which is most certainly to come. It's the highest hope of every believer, an incredible promise that you are going to see the face of God. We will be his people and he shall be our God forever. All of our lives we can come close to God, we can sense his presence, we can talk to him, but we can't come face to face with him. But if you persevere through the pain and suffering of this present world, God's face awaits you, brother and sister, on the other side. Do you thirst for that? Can you imagine what it is to look upon the unveiled glory of God even for a second, even for one second, every pain that you've ever experienced in this world will fade away. And he's promised that. And he secured it in Christ. If you're in Christ today, by faith alone, you are bound for that day. You are bound to see Christ face to face. And if you're not in Christ, get on the train now while you have life. If you're honest with your soul and you have no thirst for God whatsoever, today I would call upon you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Call upon his name while you have life, while he may yet be found. For it is only in Christ that as those waves come, waves of grief and pain that are associated with this life will pass away forever as he makes all things 